Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was in China over the weekend for some of the highest profile talks yet between the Chinese government and the Biden administration. As a fierce struggle over the future of the world economy plays out, the United States has maintained the Trump-era tariffs and is seeking to diminish China's role in global trade. Will the two largest world economies decouple? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. So, Professor Wolf, this was a major trip, several days. Janet Yellen met with a host of political and economic leaders in China. She was, of course, coordinating with U.S. businesses very closely. What do you think the the real purpose of this trip was? Well, I think it is a chapter in an ongoing saga, and that it's important for Americans to understand what that saga is, and that will avoid the problem of getting too excited about this or that chapter because there's a lot of hemming and hawing and backwards and forwards. So let's get to the the basic question. The basic question has to do with this. Over the last 30 to 40 years, basically since the United States under Nixon and Kissinger reopened diplomatic relations with China back in the 1970s, We have seen a spectacular period of economic prosperity and growth. In other words, there's a clear association between renewing contact with China and experiencing one of the longest growth periods in the United States, marked by a booming stock market, marked by enormous accumulations of wealth, and marked also by the fact that most of that wealth went to the top one or two percent of the American people. But what concerns U.S. versus China is the following fact that is much less well understood, that the prosperity and growth of China was and remains much more spectacular than what happened in the United States. For most of the last 30 years, the Chinese economy has grown much faster, two to three times faster than that of the United States. 
the last 30 years of what has been called neoliberal globalization was good for the American capitalist system, but it was way better for the Chinese to the extent that by three years ago, 2020, the Chinese economy with its allies, they are gathered together in a coalition called the BRICS, was producing by 2020 the same amount of total output of goods and services that the United States and its allies were, the G7. This is historical transformation. The poorest countries in the world, China, India, and in many ways, Brazil, South Africa, and even Russia, had caught up and then over the last three years had surpassed the United States. And so the United States discovered, which it should have seen coming, but it didn't, it discovered that it now has, for the first time in the last century, a serious economic competitor, one able to outproduce it in manufacturing, one able to outproduce it in high-tech production, one able to compete at the very highest level of modern communications, technology, internet, and all the rest. This has plunged the United States into a kind of split mentality. One part, and that's led by the government and particularly by the neoconservative policymakers now dominant in Washington, it has led them to try to undo what the last 35 years have achieved in and for the People's Republic of China. And so you have saber rattling around the Taiwan issue. You have the attempt to weaken one of China's important allies, Russia, by means of the Ukrainian war. You see one politician after another denouncing the Chinese, threatening the Chinese, blaming the Chinese. It's all a little bit over-rehearsed and it's all a little bit childish. But there's another part of the United States that keeps very clearly quiet. That's the big business community of this country. The biggest manufacturers, the biggest mega corporations, the biggest banks. Why are they quiet? Because they have invested over the last 30 years hundreds of billions of dollars in China. They produce in China. They count on products produced by them or someone else in China that they bring to other parts of the world to produce the goods they sell around the world. Those corporations are not interested in anything other than the bottom line, because that's what capitalism is about, profiting. They will tell you that, and their relationships with China have been supremely profitable, which is why I opened by saying it's been 30 years that have been good to the United States, especially its biggest corporations, and especially the 10% of our people that own most of the shares in all those companies, and therefore are the ones who profit the most. 
So what we have is a struggle inside the United States between the, the political anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-China folks who dominate our politics most of the time and the business community. And this is a bit of a new experience for the United States, which has mostly seen the business community controlling and governing the political. And that may be the way this gets resolved, that they the business community will hold on to the relationship with China because it's profitable, and they'll let the political winds blow this way and that, but hopefully die down so they can go back to making money in China. I want to remind people, General Motors sells more cars in China than it does here. They're not going to give that up. They are going to continue to make money with China or try very hard to. What didn't get a lot of attention alongside the visits by Blinken and Yellen were visits by Jamie Dimon, the head of the largest bank in the United States, by Elon Musk, the richest man in the world right now on top of Tesla Motors. Those businesses know they need and depend on China and they are not in a mood and not inclined to allow blowhard political people in Washington to mess up and lose them one of the most profitable opportunities they have. We have to face the reality. China is an immense country. It offers the United States low-wage workers, disciplined and educated. It offers American corporations the fastest-growing market for goods and services in the world. And now through the alliance with the BRICS, we're talking about a combination of China, India, and Russia that no international corporation, American or otherwise, can risk not dealing with. If you close those areas off, as you hear politicians in Washington talk, then the countries in the rest of the world who have businesses that are not closed off from China are going to outcompete the American ones that are closed off. This is a hard capitalist market reality. And my guess is what Janet Yellen was in fact doing was trying to go over to China and admit, not in public perhaps, but privately, that they want to downgrade the political war of words, the saber rattling, the representations that Xi Jinping is a dictator, an amazing remark made by Mr. Biden, etc., etc. These are annoyances. The Chinese let them roll off their back. They just throw some words back at the United States. They understand the economics real well. And they know that that fight is a fight inside the United States, has very little to do with them. Is it possible that the anti-Chinese stuff politically will in the end dominate the economic interests? Sure, that's a possibility, but it's a long shot. More likely, Janet Yellen's visit and the things we see going forward We'll see all the noise and saber rattling 
either die down or become so routine, so often repeated, that nobody will take it very seriously. Yeah, Professor Wolf, and I think that the tension that you're describing was observable even in the, the rhetorical choices that Janet Yellen made. For instance, there's this concept of decoupling out there, right? You know, the, the severing of economic ties or trade ties between the United States and China. Janet Yellen wasn't talking about decoupling, but she was talking about, quote unquote, de-risking which essentially is just kind of like a lighter version of decoupling, right? Where, you know, maybe in certain strategic sectors like the production of rare earth minerals or, you know, cutting edge new technologies, that's where the United States will restrict economic relations with China. Now, to go back to the point, the possibility that you raised that the economic factor could end up overpowering the political factor. I mean, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that possibility a little bit here, because, you know, as you pointed out, these big U.S. businesses have a, a very strong interest in maintaining trade ties with China. But then there's this broader political strategy that the U.S. government is following called great power competition, you know, essentially the new Cold War. Yeah, sure. It is always possible that you would have a political imperative overwhelm the economic. In a sense, European fascism in the last century was that. Hitler came to power as a coalition between his political party, a fascist party, the Nazi party, and the top levels of German business. They were a coalition, but the business wanted to do business. They did not want a devastating war that destroyed their business. Mr. Hitler gave them a devastating war that destroyed their business and made Germany forever less than it might have been without a devastating war. It certainly was the closest thing to a competitor of the United States, perhaps other than Japan, in the first half of the 20th century. And the reality is, yes, that can happen. Could it happen in the United States? Yeah, it could, if it became convenient to American politics. And the irony is, it could be the fault of the business community. If you keep producing, as American capitalism has been doing, greater and greater distance between the top five or 10% of the people and everybody else, if that level of inequality shakes, angers, embitters masses of people so that half of them go to something like a Trump MAGA movement and the other go perhaps to a AOC, Bernie, Cornell West kind of politics. Yeah, you could get things so bad that the business community throws its towel in with the right wing because it's less scary for them than the left wing. But barring those developments, and that is what happened in Germany and in many ways in Italy too, barring that, my guess would be, no, we're going to see what we have already seen. Trade between the United States and China has not gone down the way the political noise and relationship and verbiage has gone up. 
the trade relations are there. And they have to grow because that's the condition under which business is done around the world. American corporations depend on China. I mean, let me give you just two or three examples to show you. And they're, they're ones people perhaps don't understand. Over the last 30 years, as the American working class has gotten less wealthy and lost wealth to the upper, one of the things that prevented the decline of the American working class was the flood of cheap Chinese goods coming into the United States, allowing places like Walmart and Target and others to offer clothing, appliances, furniture, literally the, the things of life at a much lower price than they would have had to charge if we didn't have the powerhouse production coming out of China. If you really cut that off, yeah, Americans could have things to buy, but the price would be much higher. In a country already struggling with inflation, this is not where you want to go. I'll give you another example. China is the second most important country lending money to the United States government in the world. Only Japan lends more to the United States. That means that the Chinese own, they are the owners of nearly a trillion dollars in the debt of the United States government. The United States government needs to be able to borrow money. We run deficits in this country that are flirting with a trillion dollars every year now. We can't do what we do as a country without the government borrowing. And it borrows from China an awful lot. If the Chinese say we're not doing that anymore, the impact on the American government's finances will be stunning. If the Chinese sell all those treasury securities in the world market and the price of those treasuries goes down because the Chinese are unloading them, that raises interest rates. We are already suffering from rising interest rates. If the Chinese, I could go on, but for the United States to imagine that the Chinese will simply lay down and do whatever it is the United States economy needs and wants, then you haven't, if you believe that, you haven't been paying attention for 30 years. Every effort to make the Chinese change their ways has failed. Mr. Trump justified the tariff wars, the trade wars that he launched against China, in part on changing the Chinese way of running their economy, of doing business. That was a 100% failure. It changed absolutely nothing. And why would the Chinese change? Their mixture of private capitalist enterprises and state capitalist enterprises, regulated and controlled from the top by a powerful government and a powerful communist party, that particular model has been the most successful economic growth model the world has ever seen. It has propelled China from one of the poorest countries on earth to the competitor of the United States, and it's done that in 30 to 40 years. That is amazing. This is not an endorsement of China or anything else or making believe that it doesn't have problems. It does, like every country. 
but it is not going to change what has worked for them better than any alternative model has worked for anyone else. I'll remind you again. The Chinese economy grew two to three times faster year in and year out for the last 30 years. I'll give you the statistics for the first half of this year, 2023. Estimates this year, and that's all you can do because the year isn't done yet, estimates for economic growth this year will be in Europe, zero. They won't grow at all. In the United States, somewhere between one and two percent. In China, somewhere between five and five and a half percent. It doesn't stop. The Chinese economy gets bigger and bigger. Countries around the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America, they now have a choice. If they need money for an economic development, build a railroad, erect a city, they used to have to go to London, New York, Paris, Rome. Now they can go to Beijing. And they're going because that economy, BRICS, is even bigger than the West. And they're making political adjustments because of this economic change. If the United States doesn't figure out that it better play a new way in a new world economy, the biggest risk is to the United States itself. And that's why there's so much noise from the United States, furious at China, and very much less from them. That's not because they're less childish or less political. It's because time has shown them it is on their side. And so they can afford to be magnanimous because of the basic economic reality that I've tried to summarize here. So yeah, I think Janet Yellen's trip is an attempt to walk back the overloaded rhetoric that is being used by the American business community to say to the American political elite, shut up. You're making a problem where there doesn't need to be one and where we don't want one. You know, people should have a sense of history. When the empires go down, they go down overwhelmingly because of internal issues, conflicts, and tensions. The Soviet Union didn't collapse in 1989 because some outside force did it. They collapsed out of their own internal contradictions. And we are going through something really similar, and that's where our attention really ought to be. Yeah, Professor Wolf, well, you, you brought up the BRICS. Let me ask you one last question here. So the BRICS, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, this emerging economy block this alliance, loose alliance between these emerging economic powerhouses. Could you talk a little bit about the role that China plays as sort of the leading force in this BRICS block? They'll be having a meeting next month, and there's a lot of speculation that, for instance, they may announce a new currency to challenge the status of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. There could be, you know, very important initiatives coming out of the BRICS that really call into question the, the U.S.-dominated shape of the world economic and trade system. Yes. China is the core of the BRICS. China is the hugest economy among them, orders of magnitude larger than India or Russia or Brazil or South Africa. 
China in the BRICS is a little bit like the United States in the G7. The G7 are the United States, Western Europe, Canada, and Japan. And those are the two big economic blocks. Today, as we're speaking, the BRICS, if you add up the output of goods and services, the GDP in each of the BRICS countries, it works out to about one-third of the total output of this earth that we live on. By comparison, the G7 accounts for about 29%. So 33% for the BRICS, 29%. That already tells you who's the larger economic powerhouse in the world. And yes, they are considering new global trade relationships, new global currency, as you mentioned, new global rules governing trade, rules governing foreign investment of wealth from one country being invested in another. The rumors, and that's all they are at this point in most cases, are that there are a dozen or more countries around the world seriously inquiring about becoming members of the BRICS. There is no comparable movement that I'm aware of to expand the G7, who have wanted to keep control in those very wealthy core countries of what used to be world capitalism. Everything is changing now. The world is in a fundamental shift. One empire, the American, is uh, declining, and another, we don't know yet whether we should call it the Chinese empire or the BRICS empire, we don't know how that new emerging economic powerhouse is going to evolve, but it is clear which way the directions are going, and it is clear for everyone in the world with a very few exceptions, and one of those exceptions are the American leadership the political, economic, academic media. They keep talking as though the United States was the world global powerhouse. It isn't anymore. We're not in where we were in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even to the end of the century. We're not there anymore. We are in a new world in which economic power, economic wealth, economic machinery of production has moved. And the irony is the movement wasn't stealth, it wasn't hidden, it was out there in plain sight. And it, here is what the core of that movement was. Capitalist enterprises in America, in Europe, in Japan, realized that they could make more profit moving into China, and by the way, other countries too, but particularly into China, because they could get cheaper labor, better conditions, and they could sell into the world's fastest growing market. They made the decision to leave Cincinnati or Tokyo or Madrid and move to China that was a voluntary act driven by profits. So they took their machinery, they took their technology, they took their wealth, and they moved it 
to China. Together with what China was able to do in and with its own people, this was a combination that should not surprise anyone has produced the powerhouse of China and the BRICS. It's not a break from capitalism. It is the continuation of what capitalism has always done. American capitalism started in New England. There's hardly any of it left in New England. Then it went to the Midwest. There's hardly any of it left in the Midwest, which is why we call that the Rust Belt. Capitalism moves to where the profits are calling it. And what we have to face is that they called it not just from New England to the Midwest to the Southwest and so on. They called it out of the U.S. and they called it into China. And we are now living with the consequences. Well, we're going to have to leave it right there. We were joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. I'm Walter Smolarik filling in for Brian Becker. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.